and welcome to another episode of Evolving Prisons with me, Kagan Carey. My guest today is Ian Gunn. Ian joined the Scottish Prison Service as a junior governor in January 1994. During his 22-year career, he was governor in charge of four prisons. HMP Aberdeen, which was a local prison. HMP Peterhead, which was then a prison for male sex offenders. HMP and YOI Quarantine Vale, a prison for women. Then HMP Shots, a high security prison for men. Ian now delivers crime and criminology talks on cruise ships. In this episode, we speak about Ian joining the service as a governor and whether his colleagues supported him due to the culture which tends to exist in prisons where staff are expected to climb the ranks. Ian shares the differences of working in male and female prisons, a hostage situation which occurred in his prison, the life of a prison governor and some mistakes he made along the way. I hope you enjoy this episode. Ian, thank you so much for joining me today. You spent many years as a prison governor in Scotland, but you didn't join in perhaps the traditional route of starting as a prison officer. So do you want to just tell us a little bit about how you joined the prison service? Yes, I was made redundant by a bank, TSB, in October 1992. After 24 years service, I was a senior manager, didn't have a clue what I was going to do, never written a CV in my life, thought I was going to be in that career all my life. So I started getting newspapers, looking at the job adverts. And one day I saw an advert that said, uh, this man used to spend all his life in, in betting shops and now he's in prison. And I was intrigued by it. And I realized that the prison service in Scotland was looking for managers to become junior prison governors. So I went through the elongated process of applying for the job. I was applying for hundreds of others at the time. And I was successful at the interview stage and an assessment centre, passed the medical. And then one day in November that year, I got, uh, no, it's the following year, the year after I was made redundant. It was, it was November 93. I got this letter saying, pleased to offer you a job as a junior governor in HMP Edinburgh from the 10th of January 1994. So not too many other options I had at the time. I thought, well, they must know a lot about me because the assessment centre was quite long. So I'll give it a try. Fantastic. And before you joined, what did you think a prison governor did? What kind of idea did you have about the job of a prison governor? I really didn't know because a lot of stuff you get from movies, from TV, Porridge was very popular in the 70s. I loved it. Portrayed the governor as a Blithering Idiot was around about the time Shawshank Redemption came out, where the governor's crooked. I didn't really know. My, I suppose when I thought about it at the time, it wasn't long after the Strange Ways riot, which was April 1990. And three years before that was the Peterhead riot. And I remember those specifically and thinking, oh my God, you know, that must be terrible working in a place like that. But looking at my future, I was early 40s, you know, you don't get that many options. I thought, well, I'm going to give it a go and see if I can um, see if I can do it, if I like it. I'm guessing you liked it because you were in it for 22 years. Is that right? Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Just two weeks in training, we there was a little cohort of us that had come in from outside. There was somebody who worked for Curry's, a psychiatric nurse. I can't remember what the other two did. There was somebody from the forces. And we all had to put a uniform on and went for two weeks, very accelerated training, where you did things like control and restraint and so on. And then 
it was uh, meant to be eight weeks working as a prison officer. So I turned up for my first early shift in Edinburgh on that day. It would be probably first week of February. And six weeks later, my mentor said, I think you've done enough. We actually have a problem because another junior governor has gone off long-term sick. So we're going to accelerate your training and we're going to put you in charge of two house blocks in Edinburgh. Wow. How did you feel about that? Well, I, I really enjoyed my time in uniform. I was advised that by certainly one senior person that you don't really have to do anything. You just need to watch what officers are doing. And I said, no, I want to experience everything an officer does because it was clear to me that I would be criticized for two things in my role. One, I was from England, although my dad was from Fife and I feel partly Scottish. And secondly, officers were saying, well, I really feel sorry for you. You don't have any jail craft as though you have to be born as a prison officer. So I felt that I had to show to get some credibility and therefore get my hands dirty. So apart from working a night shift, I did every other role a prison officer would do, taking a prisoner to court in handcuffs, serving food, etc. everything. I wanted to do it, not watch it. And I suppose that, that prepared me to a certain extent to what the life of a prison officer was, but it was the culture that that hit me in the face that there was this, you know, ex-banker who had worked in a fairly sterile environment, especially at, given that I'd been in, in a managerial role for several years. And the emphasis was on selling things to people, yes, giving good service, but banking at that time was all about sales. And I didn't like that much, but this was about caring for people that didn't want to be cared for to, to a certain extent. So it was very, very quick. And as you know, I now tell people about my career when I work on cruises. And I remember distinctly five things from my first day that were to be really useful. And the first one was the humor that is essential in a prison. When somebody shouted out, a prisoner shouted out, here comes the failed bank manager, because an officer had told him I'd been in banking and probably told him I got sacked or something. So that was quite, that was really funny, even at six o'clock in the morning. And it appealed to my sense of humor. There was the noise, incredible noise, people shouting all the time. There was the swearing. I'd never really encountered swearing that much. And swearing was at an industrial level. It was incredible. The, the strange community whereby I remember distinctly the first prisoner I ever saw. He was the first one whose cell was opened on, in the morning because he was one of the cleaners. But the officer I was with said, oh, that's Nelly. Uh, Nelly's, Nelly's the bookie in this hall. He does all the, and all the gambling goes through him. I said, surely you don't allow gambling. He said, well, we do for Nelly because Nelly tells us what's going on. So we can live with that. I'm trying to think what the other thing was. Uh, it was the smell. It was slopping out. That was horrendous that prisoners had to use a chamber pot. And, you know, th those were the memories that have never left me. Uh, the, the smell used to stay there for a long time. And I think it was my first day, but it might not have been. I learned a very quick lesson when a prisoner 
who was being kept separate because he'd killed a child and he was on remand awaiting sentence, awaiting his trial. And the officers with me said, everyone else is now locked up again. They've slopped out. Go and open his door because you'll be wanting to slop out. So I over went, opened his door, and instead of him carrying his chamber pot and going out of the cell, he just stood there and shouted at me and swore at me and criticized me and threatened me and all sorts of things. And I said, because I, I, I shouldn't have said it, but I said, look, after what you've done, you don't deserve any help from me. And the officer that was the manager of the hall that was behind me said, after that, Ian, come, come out of the hall, I need to talk to you. And I knew I'd done the wrong thing. And that was really the first time I realized that prison officers care for people. People aren't in prison to be punished. They're there because it, it's the punishment. He hadn't even fact been found guilty of anything yet, albeit he was in, in due course. So that was a huge lesson about, and I knew that I wouldn't want a job where it was my job every day to have any sense of joy in locking people up in their cells and keeping them there. I wanted to help people care for them and try and make a difference. And so it, it, it was that, you know, immediate exposure to this fan, fabulous culture, just incredible. And I suspect it's not changed a lot in the 30 years since I, well, sorry, since I started almost. Yeah. And I want to go back to what you'd said about the culture where when you came in, some officers said, well, you didn't have the jail craft. Did you get a lot of support from officers when you started or were there a lot of them who were quite distant because they didn't see you going through the, the ranks as they might expect? I did get a lot of support from most of the officers. I suspect the ones who didn't support me, I wouldn't know about because they probably just kept away from me. I also got support from a couple of prisoners one of, not Nelly, but another cleaner who I was very suspicious about because he kept advising me about little things that were going on. And I thought, can I believe what he's saying to me? And I realized, as other officers did, that he could be trusted. He couldn't be trusted in the community. It was a nasty piece of work. But in prison, he was a very good cleaner. And he seemed to, I got on with him very well. I never gave him any favours that I'm aware of, although I probably did without knowing it. But yes, you did get the odd occasion where someone would say very patronisingly, I really do feel sorry for you, Ian. You've been thrown into this, thrown into the deep end. And we've all had all this these years of experience and you're going to get conned and you might not like the job. And you're going to have to learn really quickly because you haven't had all those years of experience coming up through the ranks. And some of them didn't mean it. Some of them meant it in a critical way. They wanted, almost wanted me to fail, but there was a very small number. The other thing was in Edinburgh, I suspect if I'd got my first job in Barlini, people would have asked me what school I went to to find out if I was a Catholic or a Protestant. But in Edinburgh, they seem to have an anti-English bias there for some reason. I don't know why. You know, I said, look, my dad was born across the Firth of Forth in Burnt Island. And that softened it a bit. And I had a Scottish name, but there was still a bit of bias. So I want to talk a little bit more about the culture, but you worked in a number of prisons, both male estate and female estate. And can you tell us uh, about what shocked you the most about the culture? And was it specific to the male estate or the female estate? Or was it like that across the board? No, I think the the shocking parts at the beginning were when whenever there was a, an altercation, a fight, a sort of mini riot in the hall I was in, that was very scary. 
And when officers were running towards prisoners to separate them, I never actually had to do that. I would have done it had I had it happened in front of me, but that was a scary um, part of the job. And it wasn't just men that fought each other, it was women as well, although they tended, the women tended to fight in a different way. It wasn't quite so violent. The women tend to harm themselves rather than harm other people. I suppose a couple of things, sex offenders in particular, when I worked in Peterhead, I was there for five years. I'd come from Aberdeen, a small local prison with mostly men, few women. And there I was with 310 sex offenders. And I noticed a big difference when I went round a prison. When governors go round a prison, nine prisoners out of 10 don't really want to talk to the governor. They're just, you know, yes, hi, good morning, governor, or they just ignore you. But in Peterhead, so many of them wanted to spend time with me. And I thought, this is really odd, but I'm new to the prison. I'll see what, what's going on here. And a lot of them were quite happy to tell me that they were innocent or they minimized their crimes and their victims were lying or it was their fault or whatever. And I just sat and listened to them. I said, well, thank you very much for telling me. I don't quite know what I'm supposed to do here. It worried me a bit. And then one day an officer passed my office and governors are quite powerful people without realizing it. And an officer will think four or five times before they knock on a governor's door. But I always had my door open, as I always did when I worked in the bank. And I always had my desk towards a bit like a doctor's surgery, where there's no barrier between you and the patient if you're a doctor. And I didn't like a barrier between me and a bank customer or a prison officer. And the prison officer said, Governor, um, do you mind if I ask you a question? I said, no, of course not. He said, do you find that prisoners like to talk about their cases when you go around the prison? Because you're new to the prison. I said, yeah, they do. I said, this is really strange. He said, well, Governor, I need to give you some advice if you don't mind. If you listen to what they tell you and you don't challenge them, they think you believe them. And that makes our job more difficult. So can I suggest that when you when that happens again, and I, please, Governor, I want you to talk to prisoners, can you say to them at the end of what they've told you, well, thanks very much, but I've read your trial judge's report and I prefer that option. I believe what the judge said at the end of the trial. And that stopped it completely. Word got round that, well, the governor's not really interested. And that was a really big lesson because, you know, that was the way they were trying to manipulate the, also almost in their heads that, well, I've told the governor about my story and he's never challenged me, so he believes me. Moving on to the women's prison, I felt that most of the women I met in prison were victims in one way or another. If you knew their background and you knew where they'd come from, you knew their family situation, it was perhaps no surprise that they would end up in prison because I found that men in prison generally have a female on the outside, that a significant female that is either their mother, their partner, their wife, even their aunt or whatever, someone who is paying the bills, somebody who is looking after where they live, and they don't do anything about it. And sometimes they would see prison a prison sentence as a bit of a break. You can go in, spend a few months with your pals. It might even be easier to get drugs in prison than it is in the community. And the women were the opposite. They had no confidence that anyone, partner or significant male in their life would 
was looking after the children, looking after the house, paying any bills. And at that time, and I think it's the same in England, so many women were sent to prison for not paying their a fine because they hadn't paid their TV license. Because a TV license in, inevitably was in the woman's name. And therefore, they were the ones that got fined and they were the ones that didn't pay the fine. So I realized that uh, apart from, I think, most number of women I had in Cornton Vale Prison, about 500, but usually it was 300 plus. I think we had less than 30 people in for murder. And we had probably the same number again of women doing a long sentence. The rest of them were short-termers who some would say, Governor, I want to stay here. I feel so safe. I can't go home. I'll be back in an abusive relationship. I'll be back on heroin again. Please let me stay or I'm going to go out, Governor, today I'm being released and I'm going to do what I can to get back in as soon as possible. And, um, you know, that that was quite a scary thought that someone thought that sort of fairly horrible prison that Quantum Vale was a place that they wanted to be. But even, um, I'm going to get her name wrong, the, the lady that was locked up in Iran for five years, Sahari Ratcliffe, I can't remember her first name. She did an interview with Andy Murray just before Christmas. And she was saying even now when she's home, she misses her cell in that prison because she felt safe there. And that was that was it. Whereas you didn't get that feeling with the men. They were, well, perhaps it's their, their nature that they had to show that nothing, they were too tough. Prison didn't bother them, although it clearly did bother quite a few of them. Yeah. Did you find that when you were working in the male and female estate that you were quite hyper alert and always on edge looking over your shoulder? Did it feel more like that in one prison than the other? Or was that not something that you really had to think about? I never really thought that way. I People quite often say that you could sense when an atmosphere in a prison was, you know, cut it with a knife. I suppose in Schott's prison, maybe where they had 500 long-term prisoners, 300 lifers. The reason there was because the lines of sight were awful. You couldn't really see much around you. Whereas when you walked into a, a Victorian-type hall in, in Edinburgh or Aberdeen, or of course, these prisons no longer exist in their present format, then you didn't feel it was just noisy and busy if the prisoners were in an association. I, I never really felt scared in a prison Twice, I think I realized I put myself in a situation where I did feel frightened because I had, I was in a room with a prisoner to give them bad news and I, there was nobody with me, albeit the officers weren't far away. And on one occasion, there was a big glass ashtray nearer to the prisoner than to me. And he could have picked that ashtray up and he could have done some damage with it. And the other one where the prisoner flared up and stood up over me shaking with rage but I just tried to stay calm so I never I never really felt scared and officers of course will take pride in never allowing a prisoner to touch a governor if if any prisoner approaches a governor you'll find the officers are in there like a shot they won't allow that that that's their pride they won't they see that as letting themselves down in fact the porridge character Mr Mackay he was like a snowplow. And I saw a few of him in, in Edinburgh when they were walking around with the governor. 
basically any prisoner that approached the governor, he would say, governor's too busy to talk to you. And they, he batted them away and they didn't have a chance. But no, I, I didn't feel scared. I felt very worried two or three times when I had incidents happen. I had a hostage taking to deal with. I had a suspected IED in Cornton Vale once where they thought somebody sent me a bomb. It wasn't, uh, it was two bottles of shampoo, but um, we, couldn't, <laughs> we didn't know that at the time. And so, yeah, there were times when you thought, am I going to be able, you know, is this going to work out okay? And certainly if an officer was injured and had to be taken to hospital, or even if a prisoner, certainly in Cornton Vale, it's so many women that officers would say, so-and-so has cut themselves badly. I don't think they'll be back. And thankfully, they always did come back. I never really felt scared. And I, I think what I was good at was always having a gap between leaving the prison and getting home. And that was maybe an hour on the train from Edinburgh, an hour in a car sometimes, an hour in a car from Peterhead, 45 minutes in Aberdeen. Cornton Vale was the closest, but I always seemed to be able to drop everything. And when I went home, and my wife was always very supportive, and, you know, if I was pretty quiet, she'd say, oh, have you had a bad day? And I'd say, yeah, it's not been good today. And she would just say, okay. She would never say, oh, tell me all about it. But she would come to all the prisons with me anyway. She knew quite a few people I worked with. She would often come and she used to get her hair done in uh, Cornton Vale. Oh, wow. Okay, so there's a few things I want to touch on there, but are you happy to share a little bit more about the the hostage story, what happened there and how you dealt with it? Yeah, it was a, it was in Aberdeen and we were a small local jail. And occasionally, as small jails do, they'll take a problem prisoner or prisoners from somewhere else to, one, to give that prison a break or secondly to give the prisoner a, a fresh start and we had two such individuals that had come at different times and they ended up in Aberdeen at the same time and we shouldn't have done but I say we I didn't I'm not blaming anyone but they ended up in the same cell together and these were big fish in a small pond and I think they'd had enough and it was almost like their reputation was damaged because People in other jails would be saying, oh, those two, they're in Aberdeen. You know, that's easy. Why Why aren't they here? What's wrong? What have they done wrong? Are they grassing on people? Have they, have they, you know, if they're getting special treatment? So I think they decided that they wanted to leave Aberdeen, but I think they decided they wanted to do it on their terms. So really, without much warning, they just took an officer hostage one evening into their cell. They had been involved in hostage takings before. And they knew the drill. They knew what, what happened. They knew that there was a system set up, that there would be a ring around the cell. There would be an officer negotiating with them. There would be a chain of command going back to to start with the governor and then to a commander. And they, the officer was not harmed physically. I'm sure he was harmed psychologically, but they stringed it out for the best part of 20 hours and then just said, okay, well, we'll come out now because they'd been promised to move to other prisons. So they then got the chance to almost be not heroes, but they would be seen, oh God, you know, they've taken a hostage. And in a prison, in a prison hierarchy, that's that's pretty important to some prisoners. You would get a lot of credit for that, as long as it wasn't perhaps a you hadn't harmed the hostage, or perhaps I don't know whether it was a female hostage or whatever, but with hindsight, it's easy to say, well, we should, one, we should never have had 
if we'd had the two of them together, we should have kept them separate. But in the jail at the time, it was very difficult. We only had one hall for convicted prisoners and one small one for remand. So in a way, it was a, you know, we were silly to put them in the same cell. We should have realized what might happen. It was a, as hostage takings go, it was, if you did it as a training exercise, they would say, well, that was easy. Why did you make it so easy to conclude? I wasn't able to to command the incident all the way through because the way hostage takings work is they take the governor away from the situation because if the prisoner is making demands, they know that if they say, I want to the governor to do this or do that, they know the governor's got some power. If a commander is in place, then they know they can't get to the governor and the negotiating team are always lower rank staff. So it'll be a prison officer would be a negotiator and they would pass it back and up the line to the command room. So that's why they they always take a governor away from that situation. So I, I don't know what time I went home. Well, I was there most of the night, went home, tried to sleep, came back and they were still, the hostage uh, taking was still going on, but it concluded when the two of them decided, they just said, right, come in now. They knew the drill. They knew they were going to be sent to different prisons. As I say, they knew that I've worked with several officers that have been taken hostage and a lot of them still bear a scar, but work their way through it. I wouldn't wish it on anyone. Yeah, of course. And while with the, the fact that these prisoners then got moved to another prison, do you think that can potentially make more people want to take prison officers hostage because they've seen that these people have gotten what they wanted by doing that. Do you think it would make other prisoners kind of follow suit? In that case, I don't think so. I think it was it was unusual. I suspect it was just on the spur of the moment they decided, well, I wouldn't say, oh, let's have some fun and take someone hostage, but it, they never intended to harm the, the officer. I know that. They just wanted to leave Aberdeen in what they thought was under their terms and to give them an advantage. No, I I don't think that would have... Um, I mean, strange how most of the hostage takings, I've been involved in very few live ones, but did a lot of training, but most hostage takings generally start from nothing. It's just, if you ask a hostage taker three hours or four hours into a hostage taking, why did they do it? They won't be able to tell you. It just happened. And I, I've always thought that if you treat if you treat people well treat them consistently then that's the best way of avoiding conflict like that of course a lot of prisoners have mental health problems a lot of prisoners take drugs and their their minds can be affected they can be wound up by other prisoners into doing things you know and i remember the first day again there's something i missed prisoner who i remember distinctly if he didn't get what he wanted would say i'm going to take a hostage Every single day that I ever saw him and he had a complaint, he would say that. And he never did. But that was the state of his mental health. You know, that was the way he he thought by threatening that he could get what he wanted. He never did. But so, you know, it, it was very rare. But I can think of one or two individuals that we were quite often given an intelligence about to say, we think there's potential for another hostage taking here. And of course, if a prisoner or group of prisoners take a dislike to an individual that works in their part of the prison, 
then there's an even bigger risk that that might happen. What were one of the biggest challenges that you dealt with as a governor? I appreciate you were a governor for a long time, but do any stick out as being a particularly challenging thing that you dealt with in your career? Certainly the the beginning of my career, when I tried to establish my credibility, I think that was a big challenge to to actually get people to believe that you could do the job and you could. I didn't have the jail craft that they spoke about, but I think that was a big challenge. And I think once I got involved in managing prisoners, after a year, I changed, the governor changed me from looking after remand and short-term prisoners to long-term prisoners. He said that you're going to learn a lot from dealing with lifers, and I did. So that was a big challenge. The biggest challenge I probably had as a governor was a was a legal challenge. It was there was a prisoner. I'm, I'm going to name him because uh, everything I'm going to say is in the public domain. But it's a prisoner called William Frederick Ian Beggs who killed an 18 year old lad in Kilmarnock in 1999, and he dismembered his body and he threw the torso into Loch Lomond, and the head appeared on a beach in Ayrshire. It was a sort of almost like a a movie or a a drama thing, but Beggs was caught. He ran away to Holland, but he, he came back. And if you look through, if you Google William Frederick Ian Beggs, one, you'll find his nickname, which is the Limbs in the Lock Killer, for obvious reasons. And second, secondly, you'll probably see loads of stories about his legal challenges against the prison service and against the government, especially about his human rights. And he was in Peterhead most of the time I was there, the five years I was there. Ironically, he at his trial, he was convicted of murder, but was also convicted of rape. If it wasn't rape, it was something that made, it made him a sex offender. And eventually he appealed against that and his sex offender status was removed. So he no longer was a sex offender. But when I had him in Peterhead, he was. And he would constantly challenge officers and me and the ministers he would he used to get loads and loads of letters from lawyers and he used to communicate daily with the what is now the ombudsman it was the prison service complaints commissioner at the time because he would complain about everything and if it, if he couldn't get his complaint resolved locally he would go to the commissioner so my officers sometimes made mistakes and if a prisoner receives a letter from a legal source or from the ombudsman, that is what's called privileged, and it mustn't be opened by a prison officer. And 99% of officers know exactly what, what is privileged and what isn't. But I don't know who it was in Peterhead, but they made a mistake and they opened one of his letters and he didn't accept the apology. He lodged a complaint. And eventually... It happened two or three more times, and he got an, a court undertook Scottish ministers to court because that's who we worked for. We were civil servants, and he got an undertaking from the court that basically we should make sure we didn't open this privileged mail. And now I remember getting the undertaking, and I remember thinking, "Well, this is important. We need to make sure this doesn't happen again." And I remember sitting down in a morning meeting at Peterhead, saying, "Look." It's really important we get the message out there to make sure the officers know what isn't isn't privileged correspondence. That was not minuted. It was no, I didn't say 
here's what I want you to do and write it down. And that's a big regret because months later, just had a week off, came back into the prison and a phone call saying, you have to be in the court session in two days' time. And I said, why? There's another hearing about his privileged correspondence. And of course, what happened was an officer had opened the letter from the complaints commissioner. Beggs had said, you can't do that. The officer has said, yes, I can. The complaint was made. The second stage of the complaint went to a, the hall manager who stupidly wrote on the form, I'll never forget, au contraire, Mr. Beggs, was this way he started his reply. And of course, Beggs being clever knew that the undertaking had been breached again and he didn't continue with his complaint. He sent it straight to his lawyer and said, I think we should go back to court. So there I was, it's my birthday. I'm sitting in this law office in, in Edinburgh and all these lawyers are talking to each other I said, I, I know my officers made a mistake, but do you understand what it's like, you know, what a prison's like? There are all these people running about. They probably didn't know what they were doing. And then they showed me this reply from the manager. And I said, well, I won't repeat what I said, but I realized that we were in trouble. So then I had to appear in the court session, sat behind all these lawyers. I wasn't allowed to speak. Chief executive was there with me. He wasn't allowed to speak. And I just had to listen to me, well, my staff getting torn to bits about what they'd done wrong. And um, the judges, they heard the case and said, right, we'll be back in three months because we want to see what, you know, what, what's going to be done about this. And three months later, I was back. And as the governor, see, what, what Beggs was trying to do is he was trying to get ministers in contempt of court because of the undertaking breach. But no, the Lord Cullen, it was, who spoke on behalf of the three judges, said that was my fault, that I, sh I didn't do enough to stop this happening. And he was absolutely right. Although I thought I'd done enough, I couldn't prove I'd done enough to the court. And it, it showed me how difficult, how different it is between trying to run a prison and trying to actually prove what you're doing is legal in a court setting. So that, I think, was the biggest challenge I ever had. There were politicians at the time, I know at least one, if not two, that wanted my head on a to roll and go. They, I should have been sacked. Chief executive was very supportive. I then, after the first, first hearing, I went back and I, I spoke to every single member of staff, some in groups, some on, on their own, and got them to sign an undertaking of, of my own to say they understood what the rule was and they knew the consequences of not of, of breaching it again. So I knew then if, if it happened another time, I was okay because I had done what I should have done weeks and weeks before. I got a little bit of consolation because I had to appear back in court again in March and I got a sight of the ruling the day before. I couldn't say anything, but I was made to look rather stupid in that court that day. And the Council for Scottish Ministers said, this isn't right. They can't make the governor to blame for this because the governor's not a legal entity, it's Scottish ministers. So somewhere in Hansard, a few months later, there's a ruling that says that they shouldn't have made me <laughs> responsible for it. Doesn't make me feel any better about it, but at least, you know, that, that was the finish of the story. So I suppose that was really hard to take 
one of the officers involved in this, his attitude was, and this is unusual for an officer to say, well, you get paid the big bucks, governor, so you take the blame. So he didn't really care that his mistake and, and something he should have known resulted in me having to go through that. But nothing happened to me. There were no disciplinary proceedings. I was just so very careful when I had anything come to me that had begs on it and had legal anything legal on it. And he, he's still at it now, I'm sure, looking to get undertakings. That's how he gets through his sentence, I think. Yeah, and that's the problem as the, the governor, isn't it? That often the buck stops with you, even if you weren't responsible for something. And I, I find you'll know much more than me, but I find that the media, especially when it comes to prisons, tend to highlight all of your feelings, but they very rarely highlight all of the incredible things that you've done. No, it's the same chief executive who I had then, name was Tony Cameron, they always said, there's one headline you'll never see in a newspaper, which is well-run prison has quiet day. My wife reads the Daily Mail, and I always look at the Daily Mail after she's read it, so because I like to pick up the stories that they're running about in Scotland, soft-touch justice. And one I use when I do my talks now, the most recent one, is um, when they had a MasterChef winner go into a custody unit and give women who were being released some cookery lessons. And the male just lambasted that and was soft touch and all the rest of it. To me, that's positive. And that's when I, I always, when I do my first talk, I always say, you know, everyone in the audience will have a view on prisons and they'll either be the Daily Mail or there'll be something else. Thankfully, the last time I did it was on a ship with hundreds of Americans in the audience. But, and I thought a lot of them would come up and criticize me, but they didn't. They agreed especially in America, they put far too many people in prison. So it's interesting you say that, that you look at the newspapers and, and what they're saying about prison. And how is it from an inside perspective? So you've been a governor for many years, you're in the prisons, you're knowing what's working and what needs to be improved. From your experience, tell me a little bit about the, the soft justice, because I know we've spoken about this already, but from your experience, tell us why the tough on crime doesn't work. Well, I think most prisoners in, in jail, yes, there are some very dangerous people that should be locked up and probably never released. But the vast majority of offenders in prison are not in for violent crimes. They're losing a lot by going to prison. They might have lost their family, they may have lost a job, somewhere to live. They'll probably have poor education, they'll have poor mental health, they'll have had poor education. And they really are just going to make their life worse by putting them into prison where there is an alternative for them to do something positive for the community. And because so many of them are sent to prison for such a short time, there are very few opportunities to turn them around or help them to make the decision themselves that they want to change. So they come in one, come in the revolving door and they go out again having spent a few weeks in some cases, as I've said earlier, that they're men that have had a break from life in the community and they're back again. But most of them, they've lost those weeks or months and they probably lost something valuable because they've been in prison, whereas they could have been given the chance. And the tabloid press and the mail in particular, I don't generally look at any other paper apart from I put my cards on the table. I buy the Times and my wife buys the mail. 
but it's the mail that seems to be the nasty paper when it comes to this thing about soft touch justice, that everything they can find that suggests that we're trying to do something positive and not send someone to prison ends up being a soft touch. And it's not because, you know, prison is, should be there to help the rehabilitation of people or to say, get that light bulb moment that they decide they're going to change. But for the reasons I've said, there's not much chance of that happening for the vast majority of them. So why do we waste all that money sending them to jail when they could be doing something positive in the community? You get very few politicians that will say when it comes to an election that they're going to reduce the prison population. It's not a vote winner. It almost never comes up during an election campaign. But I think the government in Scotland is is more prepared to say that they think there's too many people in prison than they certainly are in England. Uh, I don't think any Westminster politician would go as far as some of the SNP people have said. I don't want to get into politics, but I've heard some refreshing conversations, although the prison population, as far as I know, hasn't gone down. But they seem to realise that that's not the way we should be treating people. We should be trying to help them to get away from crime and not just perpetuating that thing while you go in jail, have a horrible time, or as the male might say, well, go in there and get caviar every every day for your tea. It does frustrate me. It does annoy me. But I'm greatly reassured by the fact that when I do speak on ships, more people come and talk to me and agree with what I say about being too many people in jail. I suppose the ones that disagree with me just don't bother to come and speak to me. Maybe that's that's it. But no one's walking out or throwing anything at me. <laughs> that's always positive. So I just want to ask about Peterhead then. So obviously Peterhead is quite a, a famous, infamous prison, whatever way you want to look at it. And I know that you had quite a number of disruptive prisoners there. And tell me a little bit then about how do you help rehabilitate the people in, in Peterhead? From your experience, was that quite difficult? Well, when I was at Peterhead, it was a sex offender prison. So it had changed from the days when they used to put all the bad eggs in that one basket. So after the Peterhead riot, they made significant changes. I mean, the number of times that in the history of Peterhead, they said they were going to close it must be four or five different times, and certainly after that riot. So when I became governor, which was um, in 2001, it had been a sex offender prison probably for the best part of 10 years. And therefore you had sex offenders of all kinds there, but you had an established program to, it was called STOP, but it was a sex offender treatment program. And it was seen then as, um, came from Canada, it seemed to be the sort of Rolls Royce of sex offender programs. I think now, with all the research that's being done about it, and I'm a little bit out of the loop on this, but I don't think I actually delivered what it was supposed to do. But the purpose there was to try and get as many prisoners to admit they were offenders, because a lot of sex offenders say, no, it wasn't me, or it was the victims making it up, or they minimize what they'd done but to get as many as possible to be assessed and to join the, the sex offender program to try and reduce their chances of reoffending or the risk of them reoffending in future. And it was a, a fairly uphill struggle with a lot of them. And officers worked extremely hard. And it was quite harrowing, I thought. I always remember on occasions 
quite often having to read trial judges' reports and details of what the offender had done, and then three hours later bump into them in the prison and reading some of these things it was horrendous. And how officers could do that every day, because some of them had to. And then you had to, that prisoner had a complaint because, I don't know, he didn't get clean sheets that morning. Like my first day when I joined and said, after what you've done, you don't deserve my help. That sort of thought always went through my mind. And I thought, no, I'm a professional civil servant. I'm in charge of lots of staff who are trying to be professional and deep treating these people as human beings and trying to, in a way, give them a little bit of self-respect so that they might think, I've done something wrong and I don't want to do it again. But it was difficult with some of the individuals that we came across. You just felt that whatever they said they were going to do, and some of them went through the program and they got glowing reports about how they had completed everything they had to. You just had that feeling in the back of your mind that they've just done it to just tick a box and they're not going to change the way they behave when they get out. And some of these people were very dangerous towards, especially towards children and women. It was an uphill struggle. I was there for five years, which I suspect you wouldn't get a governor spending five years in one prison now. They seem to move around quicker. And I don't know, I don't exactly know why, but I think the reason I stayed there so long was because nobody else wanted to go there because they knew the government wanted the prison to close. And to get people to move from the central belt of Scotland to Peterhead and stay there, to live there, was going to be difficult. So I was quite unusual in that I had moved to Aberdeen to be governor there, and deputy governor and governor there. And I wanted to stay in the northeast because my daughter was still in education then. So I suspect that's why I got so long up there. But it was a a place that some some couldn't cope very well with working with sex offenders in the same way that some officers find it difficult working with in a women's prison. I didn't have a problem working in any prison, but the difference between the sex offender and the woman is probably the starkest difference you can have between those that have the victims of those men. A lot of them were victims who had been sexually assaulted as children or as young adults. And that was part of the reason why they turn to crime or they turn to drugs maybe and then turn to crime. But it's a difficult, difficult prison, especially when it had the politics hanging over it because just after I got the governor's job, the government announced they were going to close the prison and the chairman of the Prison Officers Association had a theory that I, the only reason I was at Peterhead was because I was an ex-banker and I was good at figures and, and, I, and I was there just to shut the jail down. And I said, I don't want the jail to close. I live in this area. I want to stay here as long as I can. But he didn't believe me. So It must have been very hard, as you say, to such a stark difference between women's prison and then working with sex offenders. And I feel like sex offender prisoners can be such a controversial subject because there are so many people that don't believe that those people are capable of being rehabilitated. And it's it says a lot about a prison governor and prison officers that they are able to put their potential personal feelings to the side and be able to deliver the same care to those sex offender inmates as they're delivering to the women who, as you say, have oftentimes been victim to people like that. Yeah, I suppose there were there were some differences that one, sex offenders like to be in a place where they feel safe. 
So they were all in one group, albeit there were prisoners that were grooming, trying to groom the younger prisoners there. So it wasn't all a case of, oh, we're all sex offenders. We all get on with each other. There were fewer f- threats of violence from towards staff. There was less drug taking. Prisoners generally got on reasonably well together. So it was a quiet prison in that respect. But you had that underlying thought that, well, what are they up to? What are they doing? Are they still targeting their families? You had you know, visitors that would come that think, well, there's somebody visiting their grandfather who actually is in prison for what he did towards the daughter or the, you know, so you had a generation apart and perhaps it was the daughter that had reported the father and that's why he was in prison, but the granddaughter was coming to see him. You know, it was bizarre. So you got the feeling, well, they're still, they're grooming their grandchild to say, well, I'm okay, actually, you know, it was all your mum's fault, things like that. It was, it was, it was a difficult place. I, I do remember one day, it was the summer one year, and I love cricket, and I was talking about cricket to a group of prisoners. And I thought to myself, well, you know, there's every sort of type of sex offender in this little group, and they're all talking about a test match to me. And is that wrong? The Daily Mail would think it's wrong, but I'm talking to them as fellow human beings in a, a nice, pleasant, sunny day in Peterhead, which is quite unusual, but we're having a normal conversation. And what's wrong with that? If you're trying to get these people who have done horrendous things to actually perhaps think about, well, there is a life outside and I'm going to I'm going to live a better one and I'm not going to reoffend. I know it's a huge jump from talking about somebody's score in a test match to that, but I always felt that if you're going to try and get people to change, then you have to treat them as, you know, have to treat them with respect, irrespective of what they've done, which wasn't always easy. Yeah, I can imagine. And do you think any staff felt quite unsafe working in a sex offenders prison or or do you not think that was really a problem? I think the way that the training was done there and the way that staff were briefed on how to work with sex offenders, then I'm pretty confident that they would know when something wasn't right. And occasionally we would get someone that would say, and especially the ones that delivered the, the sex offender program, because they would have to, there would be sessions where prisoners would have to talk about their crimes, would have to sometimes write a letter to their victim. It never gets sent, but it was um, an exercise they did. So they were, they got very deeply involved in the cases and they must have heard some horrible things and they, they had to cope with that. They did have to have counselling as a, as part of their job, regular counselling. But I can't really think of too many who said, no, I want away from here. Strangely, there were more officers who said, I don't want to work with women, mostly men who said, no, I don't like this. I'd rather be in a male prison. I feel happier in a male prison. And some of them, I think, like, well, say like me, but I always felt, say, as I said earlier, 90% of the women I had, I wouldn't put them in prison. But because of what they'd done over their criminal careers and because of all the hoops they hadn't jumped through, I don't blame a sheriff or a judge for putting them in prison because they'd given them 20 chances already. So why give them another one? But I think there were people who felt it was it was wrong the way we 
we had to have these vulnerable women in a prison setting. Yeah. And what do you think are some misconceptions that the public might have about a prison governor? Because I feel like prisons, the whole concept of prison is behind a wall. You don't know much about it. And when you do hear about it, it tends to be prisoners and how well they're being treated or sometimes prison officers, but they're never shown in a good light either. But you rarely hear about governors. So what are some misconceptions that you think they have? Well, I think, again, it, it comes back to how they're portrayed in, um, in, the me- in, in movies and TV. Porridge, of course, shows the governor as a, an idiot. Warden Norton and Shawshank is an outright crook and uh, doesn't care about his prisoners. So I suppose to show the life of a prison governor as it really is, would be a bit boring because, you know, what, what do governors do? Well, they come in in the morning, they usually have a meeting to see what's happened overnight. What's happening today? It's like any other business. What are we expecting to happen today? What are we planning to do today? Is this a special day for something? Is it, are there any issues? Are there any problems? Do we run out of food or something? Or not run out of food, but is there an issue with the food? And usually wander about part of the prison wander about sounds lazy but to to walk the job which I don't really like but so that they can be seen they can get the feel for what's going on and make sure that their staff are supported and make sure they've got what they want make sure the standards are being kept up talk to prisoners as well and do whatever else they're doing outside their role because they're usually involved in something else some sort of development within the prison service that might be going on. They might be on some committee or group that's working on, I worked on one that was um, reviewing the prison rules once. There's another one I did. I did a project on video conferencing many years ago to see if it could be introduced. So there's always something else. So I suppose governors are fairly almost invisible to the public. I remember when Fred West hung himself in Birmingham prison many years ago, the governor was in the news then because he was it was his fault that Fred West had killed himself. And I think that's what another chief executive said to me was, if something goes wrong, the chief executive, the governor, and the first person involved at the sharp end are the only people that are ever really thought about. And usually the one at the sharp end, it gets missed out. And it's the governor's fault and it's the chief executive's fault. So I never really thought, it really mattered by what people thought about what I did. As long as when I thought about it, I did my job fairly and consistently as far as prisoners and staff were concerned, that I you know, did my best and I did what I thought was a good job in a difficult environment. And most prisoners don't really want to know the governor. They're not really interested in a male prison. In the women's prison, they do want to know the governor. And perhaps it's because Quantum Vale prison was so, so different in the way you, it wasn't an old style prison that was more like a campus. So you tended to see women in groups more often than you would see men in groups. But, you know, recall the, the starkest difference I ever had between men and women in prison was one day just after I took over Quantum Vale when I wanted to get a feel for the disciplinary proceedings. And I wanted to see what sort of things the women were getting into trouble for and what was ending up in the adjudication system of where prisoners were breaking the rules. And two women, they were on report for fighting each other. And I always like to get fighters in the room at the same time. 
as long as the officer said it was safe to do so. And I sat them down and one of them had no injuries and the other lady had bruises on her face, a black eye. And I'd only ever experienced this environment in a men's prison before. So I said flippantly, as I had done many times, oh, I see who won second prize in the fight. And the girl with the black eye said, Governor, that's so unfair. My partner did this to me last weekend before I came into prison. And I felt so bad that I had made that assumption. And that was a really, really quick lesson about the differences between men and women in prison. And I I never did anything like that again. And it was such a powerful thing to happen. And I really did. I still feel bad about it now. It's so such a terrible thing to do. You know, just that that was the difference. Mm-hmm. But the problem is you're learning as you go, aren't you? Well, like in prison, it seems very much like, it, well, it is a job where you learn most of it on the job. So sadly, there probably are times where you put your foot in it and it's only by doing that that you actually realise and learn a lesson, I suppose. Yes. It was clear that I had a lot to learn about the culture of a woman's prison against the one a culture of men where, you know, another one was men would, if they were unhappy with one of their, somebody who was in the hall with them, they'd just go and batter them, probably. In a women's prison, they'd just send them to Coventry and not speak to them. They'd have little groups, little cliques of women, and if they wanted to be nasty to someone, they wouldn't assault them. They would just either throw them out of the group or not allow them in. That was a big difference I found as well. But so you learn, you always learn something new every, well, every day, but you, you did always have to think, well, that's not happened to me before. I need to learn from that. Yeah. In what way do you think, if at all, the culture of prison changed your personality and how you viewed the world? If you ask my wife that question, she'll t- and my late mother, they will both tell you that I became a harder person. I agree, but I think it made me more confident in my the way I went about things. I was challenged by horrible, nasty people all the time, and I, you know, I stood up to them and I dealt with them fairly and consistently, and wasn't phased by them. And I could have never have done that before had I not been put in this environment. So it did change me. And to say, Kathy, my wife will you know she will tell you that that I I became a harder person and I'm I'm actually glad I did because I was a bit of a softy before then perhaps when I went to Cornton Vale I wasn't quite as you know it was different there because the women were so vulnerable that you know even walking around the jail in a suit to me might scare a woman in prison because that's what the lawyer who was standing with his finger wagging at them, telling them how bad they were. That's what he was wearing the other day. So, yeah, I, th- I think it, it changed me in my way for the better. But when sometimes I do, perhaps even now, say, and she'll, Kathy will say, oh, you're getting a bit aggressive about this. She doesn't mean I'm getting physically aggressive, but if I really feel strongly about something, she'll say, no, just let it drop. That wouldn't have been me prior to me working in prison service. Okay, interesting. And last question, from your many years experience as being a governor across different prisons and working with so many staff, 
what do you think we can do to improve prisons and help improve prison officers' well-being? Because there's no doubt about it that they have a very difficult job. They see very traumatising things. What can we do to improve their well-being? I think we need to give them the same status that nurses and police officers get. They need to be considered at that same level of professionalism and the support I always use the term on Christmas Day when you're listening to the radio or watching TV, you will rarely, if ever, will anyone say, well, let's have a shout out for the prison officers that you know, are working today. That never happens. So I think they are not given the credit for what they do. And that's why when I do my talks on ships, I always say that and I emphasize it and give them examples about, imagine you had to deal with this individual and there's, there's one in... Um, the Scottish prison estate right now, who happens to be transgender, but has gone a stage further and has demanded to be looked after in a certain way. And I can't imagine having to deal with that on a daily basis. Even if I was a governor of the prison, I wouldn't have to deal with that. It would be, you know, several of my officers. So I'm not sure. I think it's rare to hear a politician talking positively about prison officers. We don't get enough good stories in the press about them in the media. But however, that would then be the Daily Mail would get hold of it or similar publications would make a negative out of it. So that's not always a good idea. It's a difficult one because it's because there's no, no one wants to really hear anything positive about prisons. No one, a lot of people seem to think that the best thing to do is lock more people up for longer. And that's how we solve crime. So why do we want to make it such a great thing that prison officers do a good job. So it's a really difficult one. But it's a shame that they're still not given the credit they deserve. And quite often, the only story you see in a paper is when, unfortunately, one of them has gone off the rails because probably a prisoner has put them in a situation uh, because they've been found vulnerable, they've used social media too much or whatever, and someone's got to them. But it's a difficult question, and I don't, I don't have the answer. But I'll I'll keep doing my bit when I stand up in the theatre on ships. (laughs) Absolutely. And you've done your bit by working in the service for so many years, um, sacrificing so much of your own life for the people in prison. So thank you for doing that. And it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast, Ian. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your knowledge with us. I'm really grateful to you. Thanks very much. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Ian. I always love to hear from you, so please reach out to me if you have any questions or guest requests. I'd also love it if you'd rate this podcast on whatever platform you listen. 